Morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Albert. Uh, I'm the uh, lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network and uh, always glad to be here in Richmond. So as you know, our vision at the TAP is that we want to be a church that... Right. Makes disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And that's why we started a brand new sermon series this summer called Discipleship Stories. That throughout the, uh, throughout the summer, we're going to hear different stories uh, about the very first disciples of Jesus, people like Peter, Paul, and Mary. But we're also going to hear a number of stories from different disciples in our community, like Al Wu, Kathy Kieser, and Karen Schaefer. That each week, a different pastor will share not only about that particular disciple in the Bible, but also how that disciple connects and relates with their own personal story. So last week, for example, Pastor Jesse at Tap Marple came and he talked about Lazarus and his own testimony that relates to the Lazarus story. And if you weren't here last week, you need to go listen to it on the podcast because he hit it out of the park. And today it's my turn. And the disciple that I chose to talk about is a disciple named Philip. That's right, Philip. Not a disciple we talk about very often. So what do we even know about Philip? Well, Jesus is, he, Philip, sorry, is introduced uh, in John chapter 1 when Jesus decides to call him as one of the inner 12. So here is how he is introduced. John 1, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. So what does this introduction tell us about Philip? Well, first of all, he's from the town of Bethsaida. Here's a map of it. As you can tell, Bethsaida is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, right where the Jordan River flows in. Bethsaida literally means house of hunting or house of fishing. And so it's a fishing village. And since his friends were Andrew and Peter, we can deduce that Philip was likely a fisherman. Secondly, it seems that Philip was pretty well versed in the Hebrew Scriptures because he tells Nathanael that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And lastly, Philip liked to introduce people to Jesus. The first thing he does after meeting Jesus is he goes and runs and finds his friend Nathanael and says, come and see, come and meet Jesus. And that, in a nutshell, tells you everything you need to know about Philip, that Philip loved to introduce people to Jesus. In fact, only one person in the New Testament is called an evangelist. More than 20 people are called an apostle, a few as prophets, several as teachers, but only one person in the entire New Testament is called an evangelist, and that is Philip. Philip the evangelist. And you can see his evangelistic or missional uh, eagerness come alive in the story found in Acts chapter 8. We're going to pick things up in verse 26, and it begins to read like this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So earlier in our chapter, Philip is in Samaria doing what he does. He's introducing people to Jesus. And because of this, a revival is actually taking place. Can you believe it? A revival. 
in Samaria. Because Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. And tensions were so high that often, instead of going through Samaria, Jews would actually walk around the border of Samaria so they didn't have to walk in Samaria. But where do you find Philip? In the one place you actually never want to set foot in. I mean, no one wants him there. But there he is. And a revival is taking place. Come and see. Come and meet Jesus. But one day, God shows up and tells Philip to leave Samaria and to go down to the road that leads to Gaza from Jerusalem. And not just any road, but a desert or a deserted road. And the Greek word used here for south is the same word for noon. So God is sending Philip to a desolate place, a desert road under the heat of the scorching noontime sun. Why? And who in the right mind would go? But Philip doesn't complain, he doesn't moan, he doesn't check his schedule, he doesn't make any excuses. He just goes. And there's a lot to be said for that. And I actually think there's a little mini lesson to be learned here. That oftentimes God doesn't tell us what the next three or four steps are going to be. He just wants us to step out in faith and to follow Him. And when we get there, when we're finished with where we need to be, then He gives us the next step, and then the next step, and the next step. God sometimes doesn't give us the big picture. He just wants us to trust Him every step of the way, step by step. I think that's what actually makes the Christian uh, life so exciting, because you never know what's in store. When God says go, you go. So like Philip, I grew up in a home of faith. My father had planted a few churches, and I think I knew my Bible pretty well. But late in high school, things started to change. You know, looking back, I don't think I ever stopped believing in a God, but I had some serious questions about faith and what it all meant. I mean, for instance, if I wasn't born into a Christian family, would I really believe in all of this stuff? And I certainly didn't live like a good Christian. I remember talking to one friend in my university days, and um, he said, hey, Al, let's get together and study Sunday morning. I said, oh, I can't do that. I have to go to church. And you should have seen the bewildered look on his face. What? You? You go to church? Are you kidding? No, the last thing I would think was you going to church. And don't get me wrong, it's not like I wanted to go to church. The only reason I went was to save face, right? Save my dad's face being the pastor elder. And looking back, I pretty much was ready to walk away from Christianity. But at the age of 23, and I remember this, things started to slowly shift. I was taking a sociology of religion graduate course, and it required me to read all the original uh, religious texts, like the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and so on. And in that time, I actually came to realize that Christianity made sense, not only theologically, rationally in my head, but intuitively in my heart. Like, this made sense. It became real. Not my parents' faith, but my own and if I actually took this Jesus seriously, if I took this faith seriously, then I have to take the words of Jesus very seriously. And when he says, take up your cross and follow me, that doesn't mean some little thing. It's a big step. And so through a confluence of things and through the Spirit's leading and reading the Bible and praying and all this sort of stuff, I sense God telling me, just for a year, go to seminary. That's a crazy first big step, God. Are you kidding and I remember telling my parents, hey, you know, I'm thinking of going to Regent College. And my dad's initial response was, no. He's Chinese. Finish your PhD first. 
no, my parents came around. They became very, very supportive. But it was only after that first step, after saying yes to that first yes, that suddenly everything started coming together. Someone I didn't know, an elderly widow from Hong Kong, I've never met her, I was introduced by someone, said that she'd be willing to pay for all my tuition. My best friend, I never even talked to him about it, we lived in different cities, phones me up day and says, hey, I'm moving to Vancouver, what about you? And someone who else I didn't know, just through another connection, asked me to permanently house sit for them in a mansion up in the British properties in West Vancouver. For free! Come on, you can't make this stuff up. The one year became two years, became three years. I learned, I found some gifts. I, it's almost that if by listening to the Spirit and deciding to act, to go, that God then decides to clear the path. And I wish I had more similar stories like that, like especially getting things for free. <laughs> but sometimes, the Spirit says something. And if we are obedient, if we take the first step, then God suddenly opens the door makes it so clear and clears the path. So friends, is there something right now that you sense the Spirit saying to you? What is that first step? What is that that's holding you back? Sometimes God doesn't give us the big picture. He just wants us to trust Him step by step because you never know what's around the corner. But if God says go, you go. And that's what Philip does in our story. God says go, and Philip goes. He goes south to a desert road, just waiting for God's next step. God then shows Philip what he's there for, or better yet, who's he's there for. Hey, Philip, do you see that chariot that's moving over there? You run alongside it and keep on running alongside of it. I mean, isn't that crazy? What? The chariot is moving, God. You want me to keep pace with this chariot? And to start a conversation with a guy in it? But that guy, he's not like me. So who's in the chariot? We discover that it's an Ethiopian eunuch sitting in the chariot and reading the book of Isaiah. And in this little short description, we learn a great deal about this man. First, he's Ethiopian. We discover that it was an Ethiopian eunuch, right? So he's African, he's black, and very far away from home. So what's he doing there? Second, he's a eunuch, which means he's been castrated. So we'll get to more of that later because this is really important. Third, he's sitting in a chariot. Well, who had the money back then to own a chariot? So this man must have been incredibly wealthy. In fact, we discovered that he was a minister of finance for the queen of Ethiopia. And back then, Ethiopia was just south of Egypt and was a large and powerful nation. And fourth, he's reading Isaiah. I mean, this man could read. I mean, hardly anyone could read back then, so we know that this man was extremely educated. He even personally owned a scroll of Isaiah. I mean, only synagogues had a roll of Isaiah that they shared together. But this man could afford his own scroll. In short, then, this was a rich, powerfully educated, sexually mutilated African black man. Pretty much the, exactly the opposite of Philip. And out of the thousands of Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans that needed Jesus, God specifically leads Philip to this man. Why? What happens next? Our story continues in Acts chapter 8, verse 30. And it begins like this, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. God's timing as perfect is perfect. At that very moment, Philip hears the Ethiopian reading the book of Isaiah. The eunuch is reading Isaiah because he's trying to figure out what is going on. 
He's likely confused, disheartened, and upset. He's trying to make sense of his visit to Jerusalem, and I suspect it has not been a good trip. How do I know that? Let me explain. Back in those days, males who were in powerful positions often had to castrate themselves. The reason was that a male royal or king, for example, wouldn't allow another male to work in court along with his wife, the queen, or his daughters unless they were castrated in order to avoid any hanky-panky. So you don't actually make it to the top unless you become a eunuch. Well, this man has made it to the top, and he has paid the price for it. And it's because of that maybe he's not entirely content with who he is. After all, how would you explain why an Ethiopian would make such an incredible long journey, 500 miles to Jerusalem? Purpose, meaning, direction in life, whatever you want to call it. But this man is in serious search mode, spiritual search mode. So just imagine he's made this journey. He's tried to learn as much as he can about Yahweh God. He shows up to the temple of Jerusalem, and to his dismay and to his shock, they don't let him in. You're not allowed. You don't come in. You are not allowed. You don't belong. Because according to the Old Testament law, your kind, along with lepers and others, your kind, those who have been sexually altered or mutilated, are not allowed in. So he's devastated. And as he's on his way home, he begins to search through Isaiah to find answers to all of this. And where is he reading in the book of Isaiah? We later learn that he's reading in the 50s, like chapter 50 and so forth, and specifically around chapter 53. Why there? What is the significance of that? Well, because right there on the same page is the one passage that actually speaks to eunuchs and foreigners. The passage is in Isaiah 56, and starting in verse 3, it reads like this, and these are amazing words. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who chooses what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Come on. Was this not written for this man? This is almost prophetic for what is happening here, that in this passage, God is proclaiming hope and acceptance for both eunuchs and foreigners, and this man is both. He came to Jerusalem seeking hope, seeking a loving God, something or someone to fill the void in his life that he could not fill. And have you ever felt like that? That regardless of how hard you work, how successful you become, how much money you make, there's still something missing. You feel this emptiness, like you're missing something or someone, someone who knows you and loves you. And it is in this passage that Isaiah is saying, yes, you belong. But how? How is this even possible? How can I belong, he asks. And this is where Philip jumps in, like literally into the chariot. Story continues in verse 30. Again, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. 
the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Yet Philip hears the Samaritan reading Isaiah 53, jumps in the chariot, and begins to explain how this passage is ultimately about Jesus. That Jesus is this substitute, this sheep that dies, who takes on the sins of humankind, who dies on the cross and by that takes off all of our sins, washes us clean, and sets us free. And right there and then, the Holy Spirit does this thing, and the gospel comes and falls on this eunuch. This Jesus Isaiah is writing about, this Jesus who became one of us, who felt what we feel, who took on the injustice and pain of the world, who was betrayed and crucified, who was cut off, this Jesus died, and He did it out of love for Him, for you, and for me. At this point, the Ethiopian eunuch commands the chariot to stop, and the story ends in verse 36 when it reads like this. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. The Ethiopian and Philip get out. They go down the water, a rare thing in the desert, but God provides. And right there and then he gets baptized. And as soon as they come out of the water, Philip, like, disappears. The Ethiopian returns home. But I love this description, that he returns home full of joy. Joy, as Jackson said, that's right here. Because that's what the good news does. Joy. That's what a mark of discipleship is. Joy. And as a result, right there and then, the gospel is planted in Africa, and it starts with this Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian church is one of the oldest churches in Africa in the world. In fact, this is interesting, but the myth is, it's believed that when the Christians actually discovered the Ark of the Covenant after the temple kind of got demolished, they took the Ark and they hid it in one of the forest outposts of the Christendom, which was in Ethiopia and specifically in the underground chapel of St. George's. So here's an aerial view of the church in Ethiopia. Instead of building up, they built down, and they built the church in the shape of a cross. How cool is that? You can see the people really small. And it's believed that the Ark of the Covenant is buried underneath there. The gospel came to Africa through the eunuch, and God continues to be work in Africa that the African continent has undergone what might be the most dramatic conversion of people converting to Christ at any continent in the world. That in 1900, it was estimated there were only about 9 million Christians, and in 2000, there were 380 million Christians. That the population of Africa went from 8% Christian to 50% Christian in 100 years. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Go, to all nations, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was the Great Commission, and yet, at that point, the disciples have not done a very good job of it. Think about it. God had to do some excessive pushing for this to happen. He has to specifically send His Spirit to go get Philip to go to Samaria and then to the Ethiopian eunuch. He has to give Peter a dream about unclean animals so he can go to Cornelius. He, God has to send Paul a vision in order for him to go to Europe. That the Holy Spirit needs to prod, nudge, and poke the disciples to go and rub shoulders with people different than themselves. And I think that's exactly what the Holy Spirit has been doing in my life. Prod, 
nudge and poke me to go and to think outside my comfort zone, to be with people who aren't like me. You know, growing up in Alberta in the 70s, I experienced my share of racism, only Chinese kid in school, and you think of that experience, I wouldn't act or think prejudicially. By I confess, I have, and it's there. I remember grade six, it's embarrassing, but me and my friends like totally bullied this kid that had just moved from Africa unceasingly. And I wish I didn't. And even now, I find myself often basing decisions on broad sweeping generalizations and preferences. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all unconsciously harbor some preference for some people over others based on things like race, gender, age, or social class, much more than we would even believe or even acknowledge. And I don't know what it is, whether it's sin, pride, the desire to be special, important to be part of the group. I don't know what it is, but we often make people less than who they really are. We stereotype, we judge, we create names and labels and point the finger at them. And it's not just about the color of skin. That often based on things like education and sexual orientation and religion, we think ourselves better and make people less than who they really are. And as a result, we stick to our own. I grew up in a monocultural church, 500 people in, and aside from one interracial marriage, everyone else was Chinese, which is still a reality in many churches. You may have heard that Sunday morning is the most racially divided time in North America. But through this story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman in John 4, countless stories in the Bible and through what the Holy Spirit was doing, things began to shift for me that I began to recognize my ethnocentrism and found myself very much desiring to be part of a church that was ethnically diverse, neighborhood-orientated, and kingdom-focused on things like justice and reconciliation. And so as an intern, and then as a pastor graduating from region, I worked in two different Chinese churches, trying to create a vision of what this church should look like introducing different people to the gospel of Jesus. But every time I did something, it was met with pushback and opposition. Everything, from little things, like washroom signs. Like you'd go into this washroom, and then there would be writing above the urinal in the men's, and it was all in Chinese. So if you're new and you can't read Chinese, does it say to flush or not to flush? <laughs> that is the question. So when I said, brought it up to the council and the other pastors, hey, somebody has to translate this. This is wrong. It's not hospitable. It's not welcoming. They said the same line every single week. There you go again, Albert, every week making trouble. And when I started making friends with the homeless population that lived near the church, I mean, I knew them by name. I hung out with them. I welcomed them to the church. And actually on one Sunday, three homeless people came in and sat in the back pew to listen to me preach. And so after the sermon, an elder came up, wanted to talk to me, and then came with this long convoluted story about how a pastor in New York started working with gang members, and because of that, he was fired. And then he looked at me in the eye and said, so Albert, be very careful. Meaning I'd be fired if I continued to do that. And to be honest, it was disheartening. So if I couldn't help an Asian church become more diverse and inclusive, I thought, why not go the other way? So when I was rather invited by a homogenous, primarily Dutch denomination, the CRC, to plant a church in Richmond, 
I said, okay, why not? And so now you know why we are called what we are called. We are the tapestry. And that's what we are about. That we want to weave people of different color, background, age, and social strata into the fabric of a Christian community. We're called the tapestry, but are we truly? We may look like it, but are we? How can you tell? I think you can tell when, for instance, you see the picture of what takes place at the end of our story. When you see a poor, middle-aged Jewish man putting his arms around a rich, sexually altered black man and calling him brother. That's the spirit at work. That's the gospel message. Before I end, just a quick note on diversity. When we talk about diversity or inclusion or welcome, we have to talk about it across the board. We talked a lot this morning about ethnic diversity, but when we talk about diversity, it means everything. It means being intergenerational. And I love that we have a broad range of ages here, young and old. It's also about people with barriers and disabilities. And I always have a smile seeing my friends from Bethesda back there. I told Michael I'm going to give a shout-out. Michael, I'm saying your name. And is Paul still there? Hey, Paul's there. Today's his birthday. <laughs> totally unplanned, by the way. Totally unplanned. It's awesome that it's his birthday today. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also about social strata. I think that's actually been the hardest thing for us as a community. To be a community of people from diverse economic status is not just the wealthy upper middle class of Vancouver, but the poor, barely making ends meet, refugees, those who live in modular housing, and so on. And when it comes to diversity and inclusion, I just want to say a little bit about including those, and some of you may have even thought of it during this sermon, about the LGBTQ. And this is certainly a topic that is becoming very divisive among the North American church. And this is something right now that our denomination is revisiting. A report will come out in the next few years outlining our position as a denomination. And what this position will be, I have no idea. But I continue to read a lot and continue to read many positions and theologians and responses from Christians. And I actually honestly do not know where all of this will end up. But this is actually the very reason why I chose Philip as my disciple. That whether it's about this issue or that issue or this or that, I much very desire and hope and pray to have the same posture as Philip. To be open to the Spirit. To be willing to be obedient. To go to where I'm uncomfortable. To tell others and introduce them to Jesus. And to ultimately trust in God. Do we trust God enough that he's going to look after his church. Do we trust him? I mean, God sends Philip to a deserted road. He meets and then he baptizes Ethiopian eunuch and then, like that, he just disappears, right? He vanishes. That's how the story ends. Don't you find that strange? If it were me, I'd want to make sure the Ethiopian eunuch knew what he was going into. I want to make sure that he, I understood his, that he knew what the message to his Ethiopian friends would be. I would want to teach him the baptism class. But Philip disappears, and God, God just takes care of it. He looks after the Ethiopian. He grows the church in Africa. God is in charge. He looks after his people and his church. He sends his Holy Spirit. But do I trust God enough? Sometimes it's hard for me to trust God. In the end, the posture of Philip was ultimately about Jesus. Jesus. 
whether he was doing life with Nathaniel, the Samaritan, or the Ethiopian eunuch, it didn't matter who. It was always about introducing Jesus. Come and see, come and meet Jesus, because it's Jesus, not issues. It's Jesus, not politics. It's Jesus, not preferences. It's Jesus, not Albert or ourselves. Friends, I pray that Jesus is what the tapestry is about. More than hospitality, good worship, good food, and even diversity. It's ultimately about Jesus. So come and see. Come and meet this Jesus.